Welcome to the Quaredev Midcast with your host, Adam Matwatch. Let's start today's Midcast. Today we have a great topic. What could possibly wrong, uh, go wrong? Ethics in software development. So something which I believe is very often neglected on conferences and, and, and different um, uh, occasions. But at the same time, I firmly believe that this is a really important topic to everybody. And uh, to talk about this topic, I have two great guests um, that I have met. Fiona Charles, who I met at uh, Eurostar. Uh, we didn't talk there too much, but uh, I was on a few of your um, uh, presentations. And Fiona is independent coach and consultant, uh, workshop facilitator, uh, with specialization in human side of software development. So I have a feeling that um, uh, she'll have a lot of to say about today's topic, especially that the last time I have seen her, she was speaking exactly about ethics. Welcome, Fiona. Thank and you. And except Fiona, we have also James Christie. James Christie is a self-employed testing consultant who has worked in IT since uh, 1980s. Um, before moving into testing, he spent six years uh, as an IT auditor, and I must say that this is the thing how I how I remember James because with James I also didn't have the opportunity to talk directly, but at least I have met James on one of the workshops given by Michael Bolton on Eurostar as well two years ago, uh, when he was also participating very actively in that workshop, giving the input, giving his. Yeah, vo vocalizing his his thoughts there, um, uh, so I can also confirm that he is uh, a specialist and expert in his domain. Um, uh, so welcome, James, here, and uh, thank you for also accepting this this invitation. Good to be here. I thought I was a quiet guy. <laughs> you, well, you are quite guy, but, but 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 you know you you know the type, right? The guy that is quiet, but when he says something, then everybody listens, and 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 it's quite important. And and you are this type of guy that I remembered you for. <laughs> This, but that that's, that's been my job. <laughs> uh, that's great. So now let's jump directly into the topic. And as I said previously, I have a feeling that sometimes we don't care too much about it. And frankly, it hurts me. Uh, so firstly, we could start with, um, and I will be a devil's advocate here, right? So I'll try to challenge you as well, guys. Uh, why should we even care about ethics? Because at the end of the day, I will not pay my bills with ethics. I will not uh, buy apartment for ethics, for being ethical, right? Why should I care about being ethical in my work? Right? And maybe we can start with Fiona. Well, I'm not a philosopher. I'm a practical person. And uh, I've worked on software development projects for 41, 42 years. And... What I have found is that when people don't behave ethically, when we make our decisions based on expedience uh, or sometimes outright fraud, which I've seen on a couple of projects where people were lying, uh, we don't do good work. We do shoddy work. And uh, what is the point? When people do shoddy work, it, it, it is not only destructive to their customers, and to the people who are, who are, in some cases, obliged or forced to use their software or victims of their software. Um, that's very destructive. And it's also destructive, I think, to people's self-respect. If you, if you do shoddy work, if you, if you are not ethical in, in your behavior. So that, that, I would say, is the number one thing. But I would also say, in response to, to what you said about, you know, you can't eat ethics, uh, if you become known, for unethical behavior. You probably aren't gonna to get to eat much either. 
if if uh, how would you feel about hiring testers that you knew had worked on the Volkswagen emissions software, uh, diesel emissions software? Personally, I'd be very uncomfortable about it, and I'd want to know what involvement they'd had in what was essentially a fraud. And you are completely right, Fiona. But here I will, um, before we jump to the answer from, from, from James, I will try to challenge you a bit. You are completely right about when you are known for being dishonest, but not everybody is a known person, right? You can um, you can be unknown person, and if you will not find work here, then you will find work there, just being a junior tester, regular tester. And not even we, we don't even have to close ourselves to testing. You can be developer or whoever else working on, on, on any project, actually, right? If you work for, um, I don't know, some kind of... Um, uh, weapon company working on weapons and so on, you just can de delete from your CV the information that you are working there, right? And you can go work somewhere else. But that's not necessarily, working on weapon systems is not necessarily unethical, right? That's uh, true, yeah. So let's In say our preliminary discussion, we talked about that a little bit, that, mm -hmm. that the, the, the software you choose to work on, the, the applications you choose to work on, are very much a, about your personal choices and your personal ethics. I, I would not work on a weapon system. I would not work on gambling. I would not work on, on something that, that uh, <clears throat> was involved with child labor. There are a lot, of, a lot of areas where I would not work. Predatory lending is another one. But uh, that is a personal choice. I, I know people who I respect who have worked on weapon systems and who, who have done that according to their own uh, their own notions of, of, of ethics and, and integrity, and that's entirely their choice. That's quite different to me from uh, what I described earlier, making, making decisions based on expedience, making decisions where, where uh, profit counts more than or immediate short-term profit. Let's look at Boeing. Uh, <clears throat> achieve, you think, is, is more important than, than building something properly. And building something safely. And actually, what I forgot to mention when I was talking about about responsibility and our responsibility for creating good software is that we now know, well, we have known for a long time, but software is everywhere. It drives our world. It powers uh, our electricity, our water, our, our, in some cases, the air we breathe. It's everywhere. And when critical software fails, because people have made the wrong choices, people are hurt. Now, if it fails for any reason, people are hurt. But, but they're much more likely to have those effects, I think, if, if people are acting unethically and working unethically. I fully Shut agree. up, James, talk. <laughs> I fully agree. Thank you, Fona, for that answer. And I think we'll get back to what is ethical, what is not ethical later on, because I, I would like to dig deeper into that as well. But let's first hear from, from James. What, what are your takes on that? Why we should be ethical? Yeah, I very much uh, agree with Fiona about it's a personal decision depend based on your own worldview, your own sense of what's right. You know, my cousin's husband works on the aerospace engineering and defense. And I would never say that he's less ethical than me. He's, he's different. He's got a different view of the world. Uh, it's not what I would choose to do, however. You need to, if you're going to be comfortable in your work, in your life, 
And if you're going to produce high quality work, you need to be ensure that the work you're doing is aligned with your personal standards. Uh, I remember just after I left university, before I went into IT, I was working for a life insurance company in their investment division. And there they were always talking about ethical issues. They weren't necessarily acting ethically, I thought, but they were. that was something they had to be concerned about. And I had lengthy, repeated arguments with one of the managers who had a very different view of the world from me. He thought that acting ethically in business and investment was imposing your own political views on the shareholders at their expense. I disagreed, and we would always argue. He went on to have a very successful career and rose to become the head of one of the UK's banks, which crashed in 2008. He was had been knighted. He was, I can say his name because he's been all over the press in the past. It's hardly a secret that uh, Sir James Crosby was um, the chief executive of HBOS. And he was publicly humiliated. He, had, he handed back his knighthood. He thought that um, all that mattered was the bottom line. And I thought that he'd lost sight of the ethical, the ethical foundation that um, our work should be based on. And that was one of the reasons why I left that company, because I was extremely uncomfortable with what they were doing, and I wanted to move into IT anyway. And uh, I really learned a lot when I moved into work as an IT auditor. Before that, I'd really just been playing with the technology. Uh, I wasn't answerable for the long term for the, the outcomes. I just had to deliver neat code and systems that worked that were actually only internal systems. When I moved into audit, I had to think about how IT fitted into the business, how it served the customers, how it enabled the company to survive and keep going. And we were constantly having to think about ethical issues, about whether developers were taking unreasonable shortcuts, whether they were working to a reasonable standard. And we had to think about the culture. The, that is something that auditors increasingly nowadays are having to think about. Uh, the culture affects the way people work. It affects the quality of the work and the decisions that they take. Uh, if the culture is rotten, then that undermines everything. It undermines the quality of people's work. And it results in, as we, we always used to remind people, if they were thought that they were doing things that were dangerous, how will you feel if this reaches the press? If this shortcut results in people's bank accounts being affected, in people's insurance policies being screwed up, in people losing their insurance cover, if that reaches the papers, how will you feel if you're in the, the firing line? We tried to make them think that ethical behaviour was actually in their personal practical interests. Yeah. And you learned as an auditor to be strong and to be prepared, to be honest, even when people didn't want to hear that. So that was a great preparation for moving into testing. It was our job to tell the truth regardless of what people wanted to hear. One of the things that, that I found on just about every project that I've worked on is, is that software practitioners sometimes work in the abstract. 
and they don't have that concrete sense of, of what the impact of their work could be. Um, when I was actually working on, on, on a project managing testing for the fire and rescue service in England, um, I was constantly exhorting my very large team of testers that, think about it, this could be your granny's chip fat fire. This could be your kid on, on, on the London Underground when somebody drops a bomb. And constantly trying to push them into thinking about this from a concrete point of view. Yeah. Because we get very caught up, I think, in the abstractions. <laughs> yes, that was exactly what I was like before I moved into audit. Uh, I was, looking back, I was really very immature. I was just a flash code kid. I loved the technology uh, and I wasn't really interested in <laughs> insurance and in business and the customers. They only existed to pay me a good salary so I could have fun with the, the technology and have a decent lifestyle. That's great, guys. And I would like to dig deeper in one of the things that James have said, especially that I, I didn't think about it previously. And I think it might be interesting point of view. The one thing that you said is that um, when you're acting ethically, at least in your, your worldview, right? Because you, for example, might think that guy, gambling is bad, right? Um, and when you will make a common decision that, okay, my company will never be involved in, with anything that is connected with gambling. But at the same time, what if it's own, uh, like th there are some shareholders that, that, that are owners of my company and going into gambling would be like a great idea for this particular company, right? Wouldn't then I, by making my personal decision made on my personal worldview, wouldn't it be putting my point of view on, on their shoulders, right? I, I think that was, that was worth thing, uh, digging into it uh, a bit, right? Uh, isn't it like that? Uh, yes, I mean, that was the argument that was put to me very forcibly by James Crosby. And he did have a point. I don't think it was uh, entirely persuasive. I think it's because you know, investment funds can be clear about the basis for their investments. Some choose to, some will offer um, ethical investments where they don't get involved in uh, defence or gambling or maybe um, the oil industry and others will so that the shareholders, the investors can decide where they want to invest. I think but it, what's important is that you should think about these issues, should be aware of them and be honest about um, the basis, about the basis for your actions. Uh, it's not ethical to act ethically in a sneaky fashion and hide it. If you're taking an ethical stance, you should be open and honest about it and say why that you're not prepared to work in gambling, to invest in gambling, and why. And if people want um, to invest in these fields, they should be looking somewhere else for somebody else to do it. And if you find yourself in, in a situation where your company has, has chosen to go in a direction that you don't believe is ethical, uh, then you have, I think, an obligation, as James said, to be open about it and to speak out about it. If you're unable to change the direction, um, let's go back to something like the Volkswagen emissions issue uh, and the software for that. I, one of the things, I, I did a, a talk at um, 
Nordic testing, where I talked about survival skills, in fact, for the ethical software tester. And, and one of the things I think you should do, first of all, as James said, you, you need to know what your own ethical bottom line is. And you need to be very clear about that with yourself and, and, and sometimes re-examine it. Um, but I think you also need to know, uh, particularly if you're getting into a situation you think might be iffy, what's your escalation path? Where are you going to go with your concerns? And depending on, on what those concerns might be, how far are you prepared to go? You know, if it's, if it's uh, an application that might be sending fire engines to the wrong place and, and uh, causing people to die, I, you probably need to be prepared to go all the way and blow the whistle. Uh, and that's and that's something that's potentially great danger to your career. So there are ways and ways to do it, but none of them are really safe. But in the majority of cases, you you go through your own company. You may go through the chain of command. Uh, you may go to the company's auditors, who are typically very concerned about the behavior of the company and anything that might endanger that company. Um, so where do you go? And and. If, if you've exhausted all of the paths and it's not something that's going to kill somebody, it's just a place where you are not happy, then you go elsewhere. That's true. And I love that answer, especially that I would add one um, one thing, because it's easy for you just to change the, your job, but the company is still doing it uh, later on. So we need some kind of whistleblowing and we'll, we'll go in that direction in a moment. But I love one thing that the companies should be open as well, right? So for example, if I'm a company and I don't see a problem with gambling, then I should openly say that somehow, maybe not put on my side, we, we gamble, right? <laughs> maybe not like that because nobody would go in this direction, right? But at least uh, that some kind of code of conduct um, uh, would be useful for on the company level. So when firstly, I as a person, when I joined that company, I know what this company stands for, so I'll not be surprised later on. But at the same time, the stakeholders and shareholders will uh, will uh, know if they want to invest in that company or not. Because if I'm, for example, Facebook, and I uh, would say I don't have a problem with gambling, I will add a gambling feature to a Facebook, then as a person that has some money, I can either invest in Facebook knowing that, or I can say I don't want to have anything uh, to do with gambling, so I will not invest in that that organization. Of course, I'm not saying that Facebook is doing anything with gambling, just like an example, right? Uh, but there was this, this, this um, uh, good good um, example about uh, what to do if I see behavior like that in my organization. If I see that some project, let's get the Volkswagen, right? For sure, some kind of engineer have seen that they trying to cheat. What he could do, what he should do in in situation like that, right? Because just throwing my papers and saying, okay, I don't work, to, I don't want to work for them anymore. I would say that's not enough because still I know that they're doing something bad and I don't want to look in that direction. I would say that that's unethical a bit at least as well, right? Sure. Not taking an not taking an action is also taking an action, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and one of the things that, that I think people also need to do is is a personal risk assessment. Um, you should know what level of risk you're prepared to tolerate in your life and in, and in your work. Because if you are working in, let's say you're working in something like uh, safety critical software, you should know that you might have to blow the whistle, that you might have to 
step outside your comfort zone and 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 call out something that you believe to be unethical. And if you can't personally tolerate that, then I think you should go you should go elsewhere. You should take yourself to a place where you're not taking those kinds of risks. And 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 there's nothing wrong with that, right? If you're if you have a mortgage and kids and and, and all the rest of it, you may not be prepared to to endanger your job in that way. So then you shouldn't be working somewhere where that where you might be called upon to do that yeah i'm fortunate in that i twice early in my career left jobs where i was unhappy with the ethical conduct of the employer uh, but i was young single without a mortgage yeah i got these things sorted out early fortunately and since then i've been working for companies that were responsible yeah i think the whistleblowing um a question is really very interesting with my audit background because a well-run company should have a, a process for whistleblowing for people to raise their concerns in a way that is um, safe that won't attract retribution and it, it's the responsibility of internal auditors to ensure that there is such a process and if there isn't, or if people don't feel that it's working, uh, internal audit should listen to them. People should go to the auditors because by definition, internal auditors cannot be whistleblowers. Right. Because it is, it is their job. It, if internal auditors are raising these concerns, they are just doing their internal audit job. They're not being whistleblowers. And it is their responsibility to go to the board if necessary, to the, the audit committee, which has non-executive directors, and the Institute of Internal Auditors lays out advice about what they should do if they then have to go beyond that to regulators, to the tax authorities, to the police. You know, the, the, the internal audit is a serious job and they're expected to be there to act on these concerns when employees feel that the law is being broken. When, right. And I think one of the reasons we have to take ethics very seriously is because companies that become careless about ethics and who start to ask, act unethically are very likely to go sliding over the line into illegal behaviour. And they, it's easy to, they, they don't recognise that until they're well over the line. They think that they're just pushing the limits, they're being aggressive. They don't think the ethics matter all that much. And then the police come calling. And then sometimes even if they do realise before the police get there, they've gone too far to go back. Or at least they feel they've gone too far to go back. So, yeah. That, that's true. And I think we can smoothly go to one of the questions that, uh, to the question that we have from, from the audience, especially that I had it on my list um, as well. I will read it out loud, add some context, and then uh, the person that asked that question, if you want, you can uh, unmute afterwards as well. So the question is, so far we are discussing uh, in much about being knowledgely unethical or making conscious trade-offs, right? And so we, we heard about some good practices like having auditors, having code of conduct, being open uh, and so on. But can you be unknowingly unethical or simply over your head? So you don't understand that you are unethical because it's like a so big system, so big, so complex system that you don't even know that you participate in something unethical. 
And to whoever asked the question, if you would like to unmute yourself, you have this opportunity to follow up on it. Yeah, that, that would be me. Oh, okay. uh, so, Adam, you mentioned Facebook as well. And of course, they had some shady business with selling your data off to Cambridge Analytica and stuff like that. But in general, many of these tech companies, they are optimizing the time you spend looking at your screen to to yeah sell more commercials or gaming companies optimize these mechanisms to keep you addicted to the games so is that whole industry just unethical or how do you navigate that space and where do you draw the line who would like to start because this is like a <laughs> canon <laughs> thank you thank you Jordan. really good question you know what I'll, I'll jump in quickly and then i'll leave it to james i think i think that 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 a lot of the thing when you work on big software, when you work in in, in big tech, um, there may be a lot going on that you don't know about, and and that's just reality. And I think we have to, I think we have a responsibility to keep our ears open, and to and to think about the harms our software could do, and that's why I think the question, what could possibly go wrong, is 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 really central to what we do. We need to keep asking that, and we need to keep asking what harms could our software do. But there may be stuff going on under the surface that we don't know about. Uh, there, uh, on the other hand, there may just be something in the zeitgeist that that uh, uh, we hear about, and and I do think we have to keep our ears open. But but I don't think that we can hold ourselves responsible responsible for for being sucked into something and not really realizing. If if we've done our due diligence and we've tried to be to be ethical and we've tried to to understand what's going on around us, James, all yours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I think many people uh, working in tech could be working on systems that are being used unethically, but certainly at a, a junior level or even a more experienced level, it's not reasonable to expect people to understand the full implications of that. If you're working at a uh, detailed technical level on a particular part of one system, you might not have a full understanding of how it all fits together and how the whole system is being used and maybe abused. That's where more senior and more experienced people have to take responsibility. Uh, I think that failings in software development and testing are far more often managerial issues than they are uh, down to the failings of the, the poor bloody infantry. I'm not sure how widely, that's a common, a common expression in the UK. I'm not sure how widespread it is. It's not the people who are working on the front line who, you, who are usually responsible. And these people, they might spot a problem. I don't think it's reasonable to expect them to identify the full implications of what they're doing. And it's important, I think, that we do have and start to grow testers who are able to see the wider picture and the implications of what they're doing. And that requires a lot of experience, domain experience, and also technical experience. And I think that, um, well, and I keep harping back to, to audit, but I do think it would be really good if we had more people who are cycling around between testing and audit, because when you're in internal audit, you're forced 
to think about the bigger picture, about the implications of what's going on, to think about how everything's fitting together and what the, the risks are, the bigger risks. But the trouble is that it's hard to get people cycling around between the two because auditors are generally too well paid to move back into testing. <laughs> Let's pay the testers more then. Good idea. <laughs> well, I was brought back in as a test manager from audit, in effect. Yeah, but, it, but these days there aren't so many test managers as there used to be. I, yeah. I, to go right. back, actually, to you're talking about risk, James. Uh, one of the the issues I think is is that we have different notions of what constitutes risk, and 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 sometimes different notions from what our managers think of as risk. I I did a, a workshop on risk at an oil and gas company. Um, and uh, one of the, the people from their corporate risk office was in the workshop. And we were talking about, about potentially life-threatening things that could occur with some of their, some of their applications. It was not a lot, but there was a little bit. Um, had to do around, around pipelines and so on. And, uh, and somebody talked about, you know, being deeply concerned about this and, and, and how to deal with it. And the, the guy from corporate risk spoke up and he said, well, just hang on a minute, because what you think of as a risk that's very important is not necessarily what the company thinks of as risk, because we monetize it. Uh, the risk to us is how much money are we going to lose if something happens? We're not so concerned about, I mean, he was quite open about this. We're not so concerned about the life and death issue. We're concerned about how much a death might cost us. I mean, we can go right back to the uh, the famous Pinto, Ford Pinto example that Kim Kaner writes about, which which was very much the same thing. You know, Pinto, the Ford knew that that uh, in certain kinds of collisions, the uh, the gas tank in a Pinto could could blow up, and and kill people. And they monetized it. They looked at it and they said, "Well, we think that that it will cost us less to have this happen and have people die than it would be." Than it would cost for us to fix it, and I mean that's a clear example, I think, of where you and the company are really out of sync. I mean, I would not work for that oil and gas company. Having heard that, and, and, it, and it was a shock to the the software practitioners in the room to hear it. That's true, and I believe that there are actually much more companies that have this approach when they are prepared to pay some some um, uh, some money for if they break some kind some kind of law, they will just pay the fee, and that's it, right? Because as a corporation, you don't take personal responsibility; the corporation takes the responsibility, so you just pay some debts, and 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 that's it. But at the same time, I wonder what's the difference then between a company that is a security a company that uh, actually is calculating how much the human life is costing them right and then also putting on the um, on the contracts that you're uh, making with them uh, some kind of exceptions because they know that if they don't put these exceptions that then this this um, uh, this will cost them too much right uh, and uh, some other company that calculates risk like that as well right that well we will just kill a few people so just Pay some money and, and and it's off. What's what's the difference there? Because I believe that every company is calculating this kind of risk somehow, right? Well, they might be. Well, I'd argue that that sort of risk calculation it might seem mm -hmm. extremely cynical. I think it could also be viewed as being rather naive. 
because if that if the if the disaster happens, if people gets killed and it comes out, as it surely would, that the company had made a financial calculation, that will be extremely damaging financially and to the long-term prospects of the company. Yes. Uh, something that that Boeing has found. Oh, yeah. You cannot... If you start killing people, it's rather naive to think that you're going to get away with it. Excellent example. That is very, very bad for business. Absolutely. Excellent example, guys. Uh, that's true. Uh, James, uh, sorry, Jürgen, uh, do you, would you like uh, to follow up uh, on, on your questions or were it answered fully? Oh, I, I think it's uh, maybe taking the whole talk in, uh, in a different direction because I heard Fiona talk about the AI and the ethical dilemmas and that at Eurostar uh, in 2019. And, and I think there's a lot of political discussions around ethics as well that start to occur with the way technology is going right now and the way technology is directing our lives more than we are directing where te- technology goes. Mm-hmm. And the whole, I mean, uh, American situation right now has also raised these questions about is it the responsibility of the companies or is it how we govern these companies that that should come into play here. But uh, maybe that's uh, too big for, for our little session here today. I think it is. I think it is because because governance of of, of of tech companies. Well, for one thing, it's 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 still very much a uh, an open issue societally. Is 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 how do we do this? Can we even do it? Um, but I also think that that that, that, that the issues in, in social media, in particular, are so large, um, so pervasive that that they're kind of big for us here. But but I think there but there are obviously other ethical issues in in AI, uh, and we can certainly touch on those. <laughs> but I think that's the, at least part of the discussion we could um, handle because um, one of the things that I also am interested I put it in the discussion that we had previously before before that um, before that meeting is what if the system is so complex that actually even the company is not able to predict if uh, what will be the outcome of it because I'm pretty sure that when uh, Zuckerberg started Facebook he didn't know what at the end uh, at the end result and uh, of, of the Facebook will be he wanted just to have a site where you can compare faces of your friends and, and stuff like that, right? It ended up as a mechanism that can actually steer the out the outcome of, of, of some elections and stuff like that, right? So we and I, I would believe that to some degree we still don't know um, uh, how big impact social media today and even the whole technology that we see around us how it can impact our lives, right? In situations like that, it's really hard to make ethical choices, even for the companies, even for the boards, right? You, it's hard to consciously calculate um, the, 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 the impact. So how we can live in a world when technology, I think, is getting so complex that we don't even understand it anymore, right? James, I know that you had some kind of uh, comments on, on that, at least on Twitter before the meeting. Oh wow, there's so much. Um, um, yeah, sorry. What specifically would you like me to talk about? Because I just feel yeah. there's so oh, what, yeah. Complexity. What if technology is so complex that we are not yeah, able I, even to understand it? To start, what we've got to start by doing is being honest that the tech 
that software systems have become so complex that nobody is capable of understanding them, that nobody is capable of predicting how they should behave how, or how they will behave. And we, there's no basis for acting responsibly uh, or for doing a good job or for producing good systems unless we're honest about that. If we, it's really dangerous if we start or, we, or if we keep pretending that we can produce perfect systems, that systems can be bug-free, or that we can know uh, how the systems will act. Uh, um, over the last year or so, I've um, spent a lot of time um, on the post office horizon scandal here in the UK. Uh, have you heard about that? I didn't. I, I put it in Google before the meeting, but but uh, still, I don't know like the details. So maybe you could give a brief well, introduction okay. to all um, the listeners. The post office. It's um, it's a huge corporation in the UK. It used to be owned by the government, and it ran was responsible for the mail and for all sorts of government activities that were um, provided from small offices around the country. There are thousands of these post offices and they were controlled by a huge complex IT system called Horizon. And there, were a, there was a series of fraud cases where the managers of these offices were jailed for fraud on the basis of evidence from the Horizon system. Many people were jailed, people were financially ruined. Some people even committed suicide. And not only were these people innocent, the crimes had never actually taken place. The IT system had bugs which generated discrepancies and flaws which were interpreted as theft. And people were jailed on that basis. Now, the system was so complex that nobody really understood it. And post office managers went to court and they provided sworn evidence, uh, which showed that they had completely, they failed to understand what the system was like, how complex it was. One senior manager described it as being like a calculator. And a calculator, if you press the same buttons, you'll always get the same answer. That did not apply to a very complex system with lots of different components and subsystems. It doesn't apply to a system like Horizon, which is constantly evolving, being adapted, and producing different answers, uh, unpredictable answers. But the post office had completely lost sight of what they were managing. Because of that, they were going to court and prosecuting. Uh, people who are entirely innocent and the legal system couldn't handle that. It was based, the legal system has a presumption in England that computer evidence is reliable. And so the evidence was believed and people were jailed. Now, I think this has got massive ethical and legal implications. The, the, the post office needed people who were prepared to say, we don't understand how this system works. It is not entirely it is not entirely reliable. 
if we were to, are to act on evidence, we need to be sure that everything that the evidence has been produced in a controlled manner and that there is corroborating evidence to back up to justify uh, any conclusions that we reach. Uh, cases like Horizon, the Post Office Horizon case, illustrate the challenges that we face. We really have to be honest about the complexity of modern systems and admit that they are not deterministic. We cannot be certain what they will do. We can simply try to predict what they are likely to do and understand what the weaknesses are. And I think that that will require a much more sophisticated response from testers. Uh, <coughs> they'll have to admit they cannot predict the outcomes, and but they can't. They will have to try and predict the risks of what will happen, where the system might go wrong, what the possible outcomes might be and advise on how, even while the system is being developed, on what controls might be put in place to help the company keep control. Uh, I rather feel I've gone rambling on here. Uh, it's such a big topic. I think it's a really um, important case though, James. And, 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 but that's, that's not even an AI system, right? That's a, no. a conventional, IT system. Yes. When you start looking at AI systems that may be, in fact, much more complex, where uh, particularly if they're integrations, where where one system is making a decision and passing the results of that decision onto another, and 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 that compounds, many of the algorithms may be proprietary and uh, completely not transparent. And, and not predictable even to their makers. Okay. Um, talking to someone like Bill Matthews, who's done a lot of testing in, in, in AI systems, I mean, all you can do is assess the reasonableness of output when you, when you, and the reasonableness of decisions when you're, when you're testing these systems. There, are, there, there is nothing that is deterministic. So, mm -hmm. so we need to focus on what goes in. Uh, we need to focus on 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 the the uh, integrity of the data that's used for machine learning, and 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 we 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 know that there are multitude of issues around biases there. We need to focus on the model that's used. Um, what is it that the system is trying to do in the first place, and its objective, and its purpose, and 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 all of that stuff? And then we need to to understand are the pro any proxies that are used in, in, for data, and so on. And it all becomes a whole lot more complex. And we need to be open about that. We need to stop stop telling the world that these systems are all wonderful, and that they're going to bring great benefits uh, to the world. And, and I'm not even going to start on, on the silly systems, the, the things that I think are really also very damaging. Uh, you know, somebody comes out with a system that, that purports to tell, to tell if people are gay from photographs of them. I, you look at that and you say, A, that's junk science. <laughs> I mean, that's absolute nonsense. This is sort of uh -huh. digital phrenology. And, and, and B, what could possibly go wrong? Think of all the ways that could be misused. Why, why do you even do that, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, because somebody thought it was fun, probably. And mm -hmm. somebody thought they could make money off it, probably. I mean, there's 
that's a whole raft of ethical issues who I don't think we can we can even get into here. But but going back to, to what James is saying and, and going back to, to thinking about AI systems that could potentially be useful and that have been put into, let loose in, into the world and bought by governments and put in place, we need transparency. We need transparency on how those systems are created and we need transparency on the decisions they make. Because, because if you are a person who has been, uh, whose, whose sentence has, uh, judicial sentence has been elongated because an algorithm decided that you were a, a recidivism risk, you need to be able to challenge that in court. Yeah. And, and at the moment, uh, you can't. Thank you for that. Uh, yes, James? Uh, while Fiona was talking, I, I remembered the um, work that's been done by I've put her name up on the no, on the chat. Bean Kim of Google, who's yes. done some very interesting work on uh, AI systems. And she's yeah. tried to develop ways of what she calls providing interpretability. Yeah. Uh, helping people to understand uh, the basis for, um, for AI systems reaching decisions. And it's, she's got a, a technique called, it's TCAV, testing with concept act, activation vectors. But the point is that uh, you can see the idea is that you look at the outcome of the AI system. Yeah. Where it might have flagged up um, somebody as being, um, diagnosed somebody as having cancer. You can look at the, you can use this technique to identify the effect of different um, variables. So you can feed in uh, the different possible variables and see, uh, you can add them and remove them and see how that affects the answer. So that you can understand uh, whether it's produced it needs expert interpretation. People that actually understand the science, who understand cancer, but they can, it would help them to understand whether the system was reaching a decision based on something that was purely spurious yeah. or chance, irrelevant. Uh, it might so happen. An example I remember she gives is that um, if the color blue happened to appear in a lot of different pictures, uh, the interpretability analysis could show what effect that had on the outcome. And the specialists in interpreting could say, well, there's obviously a problem with the algorithm because it is showing that blue is significant in cancer diagnosis, which I know to be nonsense. Yeah. But the, the tool would provide uh, it's a score of how highly the algorithm was rating that particular factor. So that would, this would, prov this sort of technique would provide a way of assessing uh, what the AI was doing, but it would require some real expertise to evaluate it. And what she's doing, she's, uh, Binkham says that this sort of thing has to be capable of being bolted onto existing AI. It's not a matter of saying we have to develop a new generation 
of AI systems that are built on the basis of interpretability. We need techniques that can be retrofitted against existing AI systems so that we can have some confidence in them. She makes a distinction between trust and confidence. It's not, she says it's wrong to talk about trusting AI systems. What she wants to do is come up with techniques that allow us to have reasonable confidence in using them. And that's uh, she gives an example like she doesn't need to understand how exactly, she doesn't need to trust a chainsaw or to know exactly how it works, but she needs to know enough to be able to use it with reasonable confidence. And I thought that was quite an interesting analogy comparing an AI system to chainsaw, which is incredibly dangerous, but quite useful. But uh, I put Bean Kim's name up on the chats because I think that's looking at the work that she's doing and other people like her is a very interesting takeaway from this because she's very concerned about the ethical application of AI systems. And she believes that if the ethics aren't addressed, then that could actually kill AI. That's very it interesting. I, I, I must say that I didn't even know that it's possible. So, so I didn't hear about her. I, I for sure will uh, dig more deeply into that uh, that issue um, afterwards. And now I would like to uh, shift gears a bit. I think there's a really interesting question from uh, Rick on the Slido on how does one balance competing ethical concerns? For instance, if company is acting unethically but disclosing, this may harm customers. Who has done? Uh, who's done no wrong? Uh, Rick, would you like to follow up on that question? Uh, for sure. I, I often joke that it's easy, even though it's not always easy, to make an ethical decision when there's only one thing at stake. Like, you know, should you make software that kills kittens for money? No, obviously you shouldn't. But when there's two separate things going on, uh, for instance, maybe you want to balance, you know, again, the interests of, of you know, customers versus the company that's doing wrong or some other competing values? Like, is there a good calculus or a framework to address that kind of thing? Thank you, Rick. Maybe we can start with you, Fiona. You've studied philosophy, I think, Rick. I have not. Um, but there's a concept of greater good, right? Which, which I think is comes out of one particular school of philosophy. And, and I think that, that that is something that, that where we can look and, say, and, and, and attempt to make balancing judgments for ourselves, uh, which in fact we do in our lives all the time. Like most of us go through our lives making, making complex decisions. Uh, those of us who are concerned about ethics, and I think most people, most people are, ethical at bottom, uh, make those decisions based on what they believe to be the right thing to do. And I, I think we need, to ex we need to extend those techniques, if you like, those uh, that drive in consciously into our working lives. Hmm. I don't know what to say about, about it more than that. Well, yeah, Rick's described the real world. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because in practice, if you uh, gave the kitten example, it's not the sort of thing that you spend a lot of time worrying about. You might worry about the kitten, but you don't worry about whether it's right or wrong 
or what to do. You just, you don't kill the kitten. But uh, in, in the real life, in real life, the, the difficult decisions do have these trade-offs. And I'm not a philosopher. Uh, I don't know of any basis for making a, a calculation. But what I do is maybe try to zoom out and think about the longer term, the bigger implications, because that might help me to make some sense of the problem and decide what is the better approach. And um, what might seem, if there's a if there's a difficult decision to be to be made, and it's hard to see what the right answer is in the short term. If you look at the longer term implications, the wider implications, that might be helpful. But it's difficult. It's certainly difficult, and it's always a a personal decision that has to be made in the end. Thank you. Most of us, as you said, this is real life, right? I mean, we 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 go through life making these kinds of decisions and it, you know it used to be easy if I, I got a couple of times got asked to lie on a project well it was it, you know the answer there is quite easy no <laughs> I'm not doing that um, no I'm not falsifying a project plan because you've committed a project plan to the to the the customer that I know is not is not at all achievable uh, it's much more difficult I think, with most of the kinds of decisions we have to make. And, and as you say, trying to take a step back and look at, and look at the long-term view. And, and think about what happens if I do and what happens if I don't. What might happen if I do and what might happen if I don't. Because, because often I think people think only about the if I do and not so much about if, the, if I don't act. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Rick, do you have a follow-up or, or this answers your question? I was just going to say that's a really great variety of answers. Um, and I think, you know, admitting that it is a difficult thing is a huge step. Um, and I really like, especially James, uh, talking about the longer longer view. Uh, Fiona talking about reflection um, and just getting different perspectives. Um, if you can bring trusted people in as well that you could talk it over with, you might see perspectives for like mitigation or alternatives that you didn't see before. But um, it comes right down to it. These are the hard questions, I think, of our craft. Um, well, and just dealing with them honestly is all we can do. Uh, I'm coming back to audit again. Uh, one of our roles was to be sounding boards. We were always very keen for people to come and talk to us informally. Uh, because we had, a, it was our job to understand the bigger picture, to take a longer view. And so people would come to us with problems and we'd, talk it through and help them to understand what the, the wider implications might be. I can't tell you how many times on on uh, projects. Now, I worked in services, right? So I was almost always, well, I was always working in a company that was not the company I worked for. Uh, and I would ask, managing testing, um, when do I get to talk to the auditors? I might be, might be wanting to run past them a particular method that I was going to use and it would produce a certain kind of evidence or, or whatever. And, and people would be horrified. What do you mean you want to talk to the auditors? We don't talk to the auditors. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, thank you for that, Rick, and thank you for for the answers. I have another one that I think is is might be interesting. Um, I think it might be also pretty straightforward, but let's 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 check what what's your take on that from the chat. Uh, what if some manager in a company gets the calculation of risk wrong? Lives were lost at probability of zero point zero 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 two percent, right? So, and I would even broader this because I actually work in a medical software company where always you have some kind of risk, right? And and you you could ar even argue that. Uh, well, if there is even slight chance of harming somebody, then you just shouldn't do it. And it's not always like that. You might have a better outcome when you do it and you just take the risk, like even with the vaccination, right? There's always some risk to the vaccination, but it's still worth taking a, sh taking a shot, literally taking a shot. It's worth doing it, right? So uh, in in <laughs> in, uh, in uh, IT, I believe it's very similar sometimes, right? So Fiona, James, what do you think? What if uh, we have done um, the calculation? We think it's okay. And at the end, it turns out that maybe the calculation was not a good one. We're human. Yeah. Um, if we've made, if, if we've acted ethically, if we've made an honest attempt to, to balance what we know and to find out what we don't know, yeah, and we're never going to know everything. We're never going to manage. We are never going to manage risk, real risk, down to zero. Mm. Uh, and we have to make decisions and, and move on. Um, we will likely make mistakes. Let's hope they don't yeah. kill anybody. But, but yeah, I, well, I we might I'm just wrong. be unlucky. What's that? We might just be unlucky. Yeah. We, when, I think that humans are very bad at understanding and dealing with risk we're in we've confused the outcome with the process uh, if the outcome was bad then we must have done something wrong but you can make the right you can make the responsible decision that is right for the information you had at the time and things can go wrong yeah and i think uh, that sorry go ahead james yeah i mean if I shouldn't maybe shouldn't, well if you if you're gambling and you um, accept odds of 50 50 on rolling a six and you act, it comes up as six does that mean it was a good decision well no you're just extremely lucky on the other hand if you are um, Uh, to make a decision that was based rationally on very good odds, and it just the dice happened to roll out, give you a one, whatever. That doesn't mean that it was a bad decision, but we are inclined to look at the outcome, think that somebody must have screwed up, and then go back and look and punish the people that took decisions rather than. We want to have somebody to blame. And sometimes you just have to accept that the bad outcomes are cannot be avoided. We have to try and understand in advance what the risk might be and then decide whether or not we can accept that. When I was learning about about concept of due diligence, reasonableness was always 
part of that, that you act in, in, in a reasonable manner, uh, a reasonable professional manner, using all of the, the, the uh, facts and, and all of the knowledge that you're able to, to ascertain. But, but you can't be expected to be perfect. Thank you for that answer. And I have another one interesting, which is uh, especially um, in the, uh, it's dig digging deeper into the topic of, um, of uh, the, the burden that we take and the openness, right? So, so how open we should be about the problem. The question from Jorgen is, uh, my general approach is to share the burden by bringing it up to the team. Are you more likely to, uh, likely to tackle talk yourself out of a problem or talk the team into the problem, right? So is it ethical or not? Jürgen, do you have something to add? Well, if we look at the Volkswagen example we brought up earlier, I'm sure it's not one engineer alone, but, but if you didn't discuss it in a group, maybe that engineer could convince the team that it's a problem or maybe since it's a group, then, oh, we're in this together and somebody said, okay, so maybe we shouldn't do something about it. So. So if it's ethical concerns, I think there is also some group psychology in it because it's a difficult question. So are there any strategies for, for handling that? Guys, maybe there's something. Yeah, sure. Right. Go ahead. I think that's got to be so context dependent, though. Jürgen, I mean, it, it depends so much on the, on the people and on, and, and on the relationships between those people. And, and I think also with the, on the problem that you're that you're dealing with. I don't know of any particular strategies. Um, Groupthink is sometimes a problem, as, as we know, but uh, some ways to avoid it, I think, is to, question, is, is to try and surface all of the assumptions that have gone into, into uh, even the discussion and, and to probe those assumptions. But beyond that, I'm not sure. Thank you, James. I think it's really important um, to discuss um, these issues, to discuss potential problems. Uh, if we keep these concerns to ourselves, uh, I, I really don't think it's helpful because one person probably will struggle to understand the full implications. I think it's important for a testing team to be talking about the concerns that they have about what they are doing. It's I think here diversity is very important. Uh, corporations sometimes hire for cultural fit and they end up recruiting people who are really quite similar with similar attitudes. Yeah. And that can be quite dangerous. It's very helpful if you've got different sorts of people from different backgrounds because then when you start to hit problems, if people are talking, and they're talking about how they view the problem, they're talking about the issues, you can have different perspectives that can help the whole team to get a better understanding of what they're doing and about the potential dangers, the potential problems. Uh, diversity is often seen as being uh, a bit irrelevant something that's nice to have, but is window dressing. But I think it's really much more important than that because uh, 
if everybody uh, in an organisation, if everybody in a team has got a very similar background, they've come from the same sorts of university, they study the same degrees, then the danger is that they're going to miss some very real dangers. Diversity, I think, is an important practical issue for software development. There's a, a great comment from uh, Ilona on chat that group diversity helps to surface hidden assumptions. Uh, yes. Ilona, would you like to add something to that? Thank you. Uh, no, I think I, I agree absolutely about diversity. Mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the good things about Agile teams is that you have, uh, you have some built-in diversity because, because you have people coming from different disciplines uh, working together. That's not to say that you have all of the diversity that you need, because we know that diversity is a very major issue. The lack of diversity is a very major issue in tech, and it's something that, that we really seriously have to address for a number of ethical reasons. One of them to, be, to ensure that we are building software ethically, but, but also that, that we are uh, dealing ethically with society and not gatekeeping out people who, who really ought to be there. Thank you for that, Fiona. Um, uh, Ilona, uh, maybe you would like to add something. I, I know uh, Ilona Hunek because she's my professor from my university uh, and she her specialization is diversity, actually. So uh, maybe you have something to add on that topic because I think that could be a good take on, on the question from Jorgen. Um, okay. Uh, first of all, do you hear me? Yes, yes. we can. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Uh, I also... Uh... Come on, I tried to show my face. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, uh, hi, hi everybody. Uh, yeah, my I, I I actually specialize in in research on in diversity, and uh, well, one thing, and thanks for for, for inviting me over. Um, one thing that is actually very well researched, and uh, you know, just talking about the diversity and. Uh, solving complex issues, a, a team diversity, and not only, uh, you know, um, people of different specializations, uh, but just making a team of people that are not specialists. I mean, adding people who are not specialists. And uh, it yes. definitely helps to find uh, solutions to complex problems. And I actually posted a, a, a book and an author on uh, team diversity and uh, Professor Scott Page. And he actually does research on uh, team diversity and software development. Okay, so uh, if you want to, uh, if you want to um, explore a little bit more this issue, um, then, then definitely it's, it's just because we, uh, as I think it's James, uh, mentioned we we use different perspective uh different uh, different simple heuristics for for making decisions or we make different predictions and as a result it helps us to produce better solutions and this concerns ethics as well okay and of course i do agree with fiona because uh, as i said um you know i i am i'm not an it person i am a social scientist um it's also this, um, um, I would say, an issue of connections between IT uh, solutions and the people that will be using them. 
and consequences that the IT solutions would have on, on us, those that would be users and the consequences. Thank you for that, Ilona. That was, I think, very valid comments. Um, Fiona, James, do you want to add anything to that, or should we uh, change that? It takes us, takes us in a slightly different direction too, which is which is around the, the presumption of ex expertise. And I think, I mean, uh, you posted a, a blog post recently, James, uh, an old blog post where he where you talked about this to some extent, about how when we're when we're developing systems, we sometimes assume. That we have an expertise in the in the or we behave as if we think we have an expertise in somebody else's subject area and we don't um and and sometimes we we end up dumbing down uh a, a rich human activity by by attempting to represent it in software and forgetting that the software is a model and that and that yeah. a model is necessarily a reduction of a real yes. thing and and uh, you know we 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 have promoted this I think and I think it's one of our one of our one of our ethical failings I think in in, in the software industry generally that we have we have attempted to replace real human activity with software and we have somehow tried to 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 persuade the world and, and succeeded to a large extent that 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 it is better. That it's better to have software doing something than it is to have a person doing it for a lot of activities, and and we've lost, I think, some some real, some important things and some some important richness and also some important human connections and and societal fabric in so doing that. Thank you, Fiona. James, would you like to add something to that? Well, I think that's um, uh, Fiona's touched upon one of the big historical failings in software development. Uh, we just didn't take the human factor seriously enough. Uh, with structured methods in particular, the human was just seen as being the, the soft, self-propelled part of the system. They weren't really seen as being people. They were just the fingers that pressed the buttons. They were there was no real attempt to understand how people would use systems. Uh, it was assumed that the system was represented by the system diagram and designers didn't really think about how systems could or would be used. And they lost sight of the fact that they didn't know how systems would be used. There's a saying, I can't remember where it came from, but Designers, designers have no idea what will happen when users get their system. They will sail off into the unknown, and the designers have no idea what users are actually going to do with their systems. And I think that's been one of our failings. And the assumption has been that if users don't behave as we expected, then the users are wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you for that. I, I think when systems fail, and it's often just the blame is assigned to the users. Yeah. That's been a bit especially true in safety critical systems. Um, in the, the airline industries, the, bot, the fallback has often been to blame the human. Right. And, Without and consideration of why that human, who is using the system, 
might have thought that their actions made sense at the time. It is vanishingly rare. It's I only can only think of one example where a pilot has actually chosen to fly a plane into the ground, a passenger plane into the ground. Yeah. It, uh, what the pilots have done that resulted in tragedy made perfect sense when they were using the system. And so it's important that developers and testers try to understand how people will use the system to try and help them not to die. Well, I think the other side of that failing is, is the, the attempt to, to build a system that uh, replaces a skilled operator and that does not allow a skilled operator to take control and, and uh, deal with a situation. I mean, and, and that's particularly obvious, I think, in, 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 uh, in flight, in, in, in airplane flight. We've, we saw it uh, with Boeing. We saw it more than 10 years ago with the Airbus 330. Um, the, the exam you saw uh, the example I gave in that talk at, at Euristar, Adam, the um, Kevin Sullivan, uh, a different Kevin Sullivan from, um, from what's his name, um, piloting an Airbus 330 that, uh, where, the, where the plane's software took control based on faulty data from sensors and, uh, and would have crashed the plane had he not been able to wrestle, wrestle control back. Um, a lot of people were injured in that flight and, uh, because of the plane constantly plunging. And he himself ended up with PTSD and, and, and never really went back to, to flying again. He'd been, he'd been a, US, a, US, uh, a US Navy top flight pilot. Um, absolutely, somebody with that level of skill and experience should have control. And, and we have tended to believe that the software knows better and that we, that we can create software that knows better. True that, and there are. Uh, I, I I read one book about um, uh, AI. Actually, I, it was called Hello World or something like that. I don't remember the exact name, but it was the the the, the at the end the the conclusion was that uh, with the AI there is high potential, but there should be always some kind of human involved, so it will not go into bad direction. So right. if you have this human operator somewhere in the system, then he's always able, like with the plane, pull off right or or do intervene in situation and he sees that something bad is happening well, uh, sorry go ahead no no go ahead but if you don't create your software and develop your software in so, uh, in, so that the user interaction is there it's sufficient user interaction to keep the operator engaged uh, then then it's all for naught because because it's very hard for a person to step in and take control if they've been asleep and 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 you know, for a pilot, for example, well, for a driver, let's say you're in a in a in a quote self-driving car, and and you suddenly have to respond to an emergency, and you haven't been fully engaged, you haven't been watching the road, you haven't been interacting with the car, I, the, the the cognitive time just isn't there. These issues that Jonah has raised, these were uh, identified by Lizanne Bainbridge. I put up a her name up on the chat way back in the 1980s, I think. Yeah. And she was argued how trying to automate people out of the system to make systems safer 
didn't work. It's simply created new possibilities for danger. You left the humans, the people, with the most complex, the most demanding tasks. But at the same time, you're allowing them, you're letting them, potentially letting them spend hours watching a system in steady state with nothing happening, sending them to sleep. And then suddenly they're expected to jump in to do very complex tasks. Uh, and one of the questions she asked was, would the system actually allow them to do it when that was required? Making Trying to automate people out of systems to make them safer can make them less safe. Yeah, You don't make systems safer by automation. It's really hard to control technology. I fully agree. Guys, we need to close, uh, clo get, get to the closure of the meeting. So I would just ask last question as a wrap up of that whole today sessions, because we, I, I believe we touch uh, many topics and still there are many, many more around ethics in, in technology. Mm, but I would like to wrap up with the last questions, uh, last question to you guys, Fiona and, 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 and James. Uh, so, do you feel that maybe essentially technology is bad and we should slow down? And by example, by example, the industrial revolution, which I mentioned in the description of today's meeting, right? It led us to a situation when today we have global warming and many other problems. And essentially to solve the issue, we should take from the uh, um, earth like two billion of people, take them out somewhere else, right? And then you could, would, wouldn't be overpopulated planet, right? And right now I have a feeling that technology is going similarly in, in, with even faster peace and we, if we don't slow down, we might end up badly. So does it mean that maybe essentially technology and progress is bad and we should go to an era where we just live in a forest or something? And we can start with you, James, and then wrap up with, 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 with Fiona. Briefly, I know that it's a big <laughs> as well, but briefly. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm not sure it matters whether I, or not I think we should slow down. Uh, we're going to keep going at this rate. I think that's inevitable. And I think that we've got to be ready to respond to that, to be ready to, um, as um, Bean Ken was saying, we have to be able to interpret systems. Uh, we have to be able to act as translators of how systems were are doing to help other people understand them and what the implications are. It's going to, I think, testers will have to be more sophisticated. I think they'll need to have better communication skills because they will have to offer an informed opinion rather than a precise verdict about systems. And I think that's going to be very challenging. System, we're going to go ahead with pro progress. I don't know how that will pan out, what the results will be, but we will need people who are capable of offering good advice, but that advice, if it's going to be relevant, cannot be a precise prediction of what will happen. People who offer precise predictions will be charlatans. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. I agree, absolutely. Indeed they will. Fiona, what's your take on that to wrap up the whole session? I agree, absolutely. I don't think we can, even if we wanted to, and, and wanted to go live in a forest night, I got to tell you, I'm a bit old for that. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's minus 14 centigrade here today. There's no way I'm going to live in a forest. Um, uh, even if even if we wanted to, we can't stop it, uh, nor can we slow it down. I think that, as as James said, we have to we have to approach it as as 
and be prepared to to approach it with openness and honesty and adaptability. Mm-hmm. We have to hone our our risk analysis skills and recognizing that humans are terrible at, at, at calculating risk. We certainly are. Um, uh, we have to be imaginative. We, and uh, I see a, a note here on the chat. We have to embrace different perspectives. We have to, we have to include as much diversity in our decision-making as we can. Uh, we know instinctively, I think, without even having to think about it very far, we know what, the, what is the right thing to do. We need to focus on doing it. Thank you for that, Fiona. James, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for accepting the invitation and so much uh, of, of, of a great uh, insight, great perspectives, things that I, I didn't think um, about earlier. Next time we meet in person, we need to grab a beer, wine or whatever and then ch- continue this discussion because I still have so many things that I would like to talk um, about with you guys. So one more time, thank you for joining today. Thank you also to all the guests that you yeah. join us today. That was really, really great. Thank, Thank you. you.